Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Doug, good morning. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, buddy. It's crazy to think we're in season four. Like, Man, off per- to the races. Cruising along. <laughs> Doing some fun interviews here in this oh, season four. Yeah, they're already, I feel like our first few weeks have just been fantastic. And, and I'm excited for this one too. We've got a, a, a great interview coming up here with Mike Frost and looking forward to that. Yeah, um, and tell us how this is going to be a little bit different. Because uh, this is a great conversation we're going to have, but it's maybe not in line with typically how we do it. Yes. Although Mike gives some great thoughts for pastors and how to manage some of the things that we're experiencing right now, uh, we kind of get up to a 30,000 foot view and we get a chance to talk about the church. We get a chance to talk about ministry. And um, there's some conversation around preaching and teaching. And and But at the same time, I think it's such a timely word for us. Um, even thinking back to Sky's interview about how we have this opportunity in the season to see some pretty significant uh, systematic changes within our community. And it just feels like in some ways this really pairs well with what Sky sort of teed us up for uh, last week. So so it's a little bit different. It is very pastoral. There is definitely some pastoral moments in it. And um, we do get a little nerdy yes. talking about missiology and ecclesiology yeah. and Christology, but it don't don't get overwhelmed by that if that's not your thing. Like Stick hang with it. With it. Like, yes. It's it's great. It's great. Very, very much so. So, JR, you've got kind of a, um, I believe you said recently uh, a word that you've really been uh, kicking around as important for leaders in this season is the word resilient. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I just continue through the, the first half of 2020. I really believe that the word resilience will grow. Uh, it will not be those that are the smartest. It will not be those that have the biggest budgets uh, that will thrive and survive. I really believe it will be those who are resilient. And we've heard the word resilient, but I really believe resiliency will become uh, a more important uh, word and posture that we learn. I mean, I think resilience, re- you have a muscle, you have a resilience muscle. And so it's really important for us as leaders, especially as everything's been so disrupted, that we use that resilience muscle. Even if we start at the end of the rack at the two pound barbell or the five pound barbell and work our way up, it's okay. But we just want to make sure that that muscle doesn't atrophy, that we're using it as a way of building that up because it will be even more important here in the new reality. So you have started kind of a, a, a new, uh, an experiment, a new expression, a creative outlet for just to help train and equip leaders. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So love this podcast, Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. And so much so I thought, you know, maybe there's space in the market. I know everybody's thinking, oh, we should start a new podcast, but of really wanting to create a podcast um, that was intentionally complementary to the Monday Morning Pastor, because we know that we've got a lot of people that are listening that are the sharp tip of the arrow is a ministry. And that's why this podcast exists. That's why we're committed to it. That's why we love it. But I thought, what about others who are kingdom leaders or want to grow in their leadership where the sharp tip of the arrow wants to be leadership? And there's lots of leadership podcasts, but uh, we d- I decided to, to create a podcast called the Resilient Leaders Podcast here. Uh, and here's where it's a foil or a compliment to the Monday Morning Pastor. You and I do this together. It's very conversational. We have a guest. It's once a week, kind of a long form of about an hour long. Um, and I thought, well, what would it look like if it was just me, but there were just two short podcast episodes each week on Tuesdays and, and Fridays, no more than 12 minutes 
So about in that eight to 12 minutes, and it's a monologue, just one thought in and out. And uh, so I just thought, let's try it. And it's really been great. In fact, I've, I've got about 30 more topics that haven't been recorded yet that are just teed up, ready to go. And the great thing is I'm learning a ton in the process too. I mean, I really am. It's forcing me to be specific, to be clear, to be uh, learning and reading. So that's really directed a lot of my reading in this season too. That's awesome. And so what's the name of it? Where can people find it? Yeah, the Resilient Leaders Podcast. And again, just like you can find the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, um, that easy place to do that. You can also find it on the Kairos website, kairospartnerships.org. Uh, and you can see at the top where it has podcasts, it lists the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast and also the Resilient Leaders Podcast. That's awesome, Jared. Well, thanks again. And I think what's so great about it is I love how, uh, because of Monday Morning Pastor podcast, it's like these new creative ventures are being started and it's super encouraging. So yeah, uh, we're just so excited about that. And if you have not checked it out, please check it out. You'll see it in the show notes, um, but it's just a great opportunity um, just to to, to sharpen the to sharpen the tip of that arrow for leadership and just ways in which this uh, most of us will say this has been one of the most challenging seasons of leadership that we've ever been in, and so we hope that you all find this really encouraging. Our guest today is Michael Frost. Michael is an author, writer, speaker, and missional pioneer in the church. He teaches at Moreland College in Sydney, Australia, and serves as the head of the missiology department. Despite a 20-year veteran of the academy, he still doesn't call himself an academic. He launched Small Boat Big Sea, which is a missional community of Jesus followers in Manly, Australia, and he's also the co-founder of the Forge Mission Training Network. He is most known for co-writing a book with Alan Hirsch titled The Shaping of Things to Come, Innovation and Mission for the 21st Century Church. And this book has continued to have an impact even though it was written over 17 years ago. And one of our favorite things about Mike is that he has won camel races in Kazakhstan, cliff diving competitions in Thailand, and chess tournaments at the Kremlin. So please enjoy this conversation with our friend, Mike Frost. Well, Mike, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for being with us here today. No, thanks for inviting me. In fact, it took a while. I think we we had an aborted attempt earlier, didn't we? So, uh, yeah, glad to be with you. Yeah, well, I know with time change there in Australia, we're really grateful for you working with us uh, in those constraints. But uh, you know, one of the elephant, uh, the elephants, the one of the elements that I find so crucial about your writing and your leadership is that you're not an American, and the American church needs maybe more so than ever before needs outside voices to speak prophetically and you've done that you've been that for years and i'm just curious with the way the global pandemic has impacted us but you're also from the outside in looking at america right now um very uniquely and so i'm curious as things have changed dramatically with the world and even in north america what are you seeing good and bad for the american church right now yeah, well, I mean, on the outsider looking in thing, both two of my heroes, David Bosch and Leslie Newbigin, both would speak a lot about the need for the Western church to hear voices from outside. Newbigin, of course, who'd spent a lot of time in, in southern India and, and Bosch, who was himself South African. So uh, I, I don't know that they had Australia in mind, but definitely hearing, <laughs> definitely hearing non-American or non-British, non-Western voices into those contexts is is really important. Whether I'm an important voice or not, I'm, I'm not so sure. But definitely an outsider perspective, 
a, a culture that's open to an outsider perspective is a, a strong and robust one, I think. Um, mm. With respect to the American church, oh, my gosh, I just think, like, this is a, a strangely, you know, unique or peculiar time. I know... I don't know if it was Mark Twain who said every generation thinks it lives at the most important time in history or something like that. But, um, so, you know, you kind of get a bit over people talking about as being in the most, you know, incredible or unique time. But, I mean, it, you know, you don't have to be super clever to figure out that it feels like um, the, the energy around kind of both in America but also in my country uh, around discussions at the moment is kind of, it's elevating on the one hand into discussion of kind of like global issues, say with respect to to racism in particular. Um, uh, my country, as we've had Black Lives Matter marches as well. Our, our our focus around that would be around Indigenous Black Australians, mm-hmm. and we don't have the hist- quite the same history of slavery as the US does. But the the kind of a, the, the extraordinary kind of movement against racism at the moment is elevating the conversation into big philosophical discussions around what it means to be a society of, of humans. But then the pandemic, on the other hand, has kind of has pushed everything down into a discussion about how, how can you be a neighbour to the guy next door or how do I look after that old lady that lives, you know, in, in the apartment, you know, downstairs. And so it feels like, you know, these are the areas of discussions, like big, huge brushstrokes on what it means to be a, a, a an equitable, kind uh, hospitable, welcoming, inclusive community on the one hand, and then on the other, how do I just be a good neighbour to the people around me? Mm. And might I say, I suspect that those are spaces where particularly white evangelical churches, and I know that that phrase has become a pejorative, and I, but I don't use it in that way, mm-hmm. churches that are predominantly white and predominantly in the evangelical charismatic kind of space have not been good at having those conversations. I mean, we don't tend to talk about the, the, those big issues about racism and inclusion, uh, or if we recognise they're important, but we don't really enter into them in, in, in a great sense. And surprisingly, we haven't been great at neighbouring, even though mm. we might talk about that a bit. And so I feel as though maybe the suburban evangelical white church has found itself kind of beached or, or, or you know, left a little bit high and dry in the conversation because we're not experts at either of those kinds of, of discussions. Mm, mm. I love that idea of macro and micro coming together. I hadn't quite seen it in that framework before, but that makes a ton of sense. You've written many books, of course, many great books. I think of Incarnate, The Road to Missional, Exiles. Those were all incredibly important in shaping our ecclesiology of our church plant efforts uh, 12, 15 years ago, and co-authoring the book with Christiana Rice to Alter Your World, which I quoted in my my dissertation, but I believe it's safe to say, uh, and I know Doug agrees, that the shaping of things to come effectively blew the doors off the hinges of the institutional church, at least here in North America, mm. and it blew the door off my ecclesiological hinges as well when I read it in probably 2004, 2005, I'm guessing, um, but it still impacts me today. Why do you think that book continues to be so fruitful and so beneficial some, I don't know, 17 years after it was written? I have no freaking idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I like, I look at that book now and I think, oh my gosh, how did this book end up having this kind of influence? I mean, you know, I mean, we, we were so indebted to much better 
books. You know, we've been really influenced by, I mentioned two guys before, Newbegin and Bosch, mm-hmm. but the American New Beginnings, you know, like, you know, Gouda mm-hmm. and Roxburgh and Hunsberger mm-hmm. and Lois Barrett and people like that. And so, yeah, I, I look at, I don't know how I did it. I don't know why The Shaping of Things to Come was the book that kind of, uh, you know, was the doorway into the whole missional conversation for a lot, for a certain sector of the church. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm really grateful that it was. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm also embarrassed in some respects about that book because I think there's so many better ways we could have said things or things we wouldn't have included or done differently, but it is what it is. It's just, I mean, it's been a gift to me. I mean, I hear you guys talk about the influence that it's had and I hear that quite Often less mm-hmm. and less so, you know, the older we get from the time it was published. But um, I hear that all the time, and I often feel like maybe, maybe I didn't really write it. I just, I just, you know, something mm-hmm. came through my fingers, and uh, and it's now just been given to the world, and it has its own life somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a strange experience, you know. It's uh, it, as you say, it's seventeen years old. It's a long time since we wrote it. It was a torturous process. Alan Hirsch, <laughs> I, I co-authored it with, had never written before. Uh, those of you who know Alan Hirsch might find that hard to believe because you might have imagined <laughs> that he'd just been writing since he was born, but um, it, it was his first book. And um, we effectively, uh, we wrote two books, a book each, and then just mashed them Is together. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, what happens when you do that is it's a hot mess. It, I mean, we, <laughs> we submitted it to our publisher and she was like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And having written with Bob Hyatt on some books, like, yeah, it's just, I've never heard of two books and we're going to meld no. them into one. For no, us, no. it was like, you take this chapter, I'll take that chapter. But wow, yeah, two no. books well, into we, one. We, wow. we said that. We said that. You take this chapter. We, were like, we, we did all that, but then we just both wrote a whole book each. You know? so, um, <laughs> and I can remember the publisher sent it to Alan Roxburgh, actually. And, um, and uh, Alan happened to be in Sydney, so he came with a hard copy. He printed the thing out, and we sat in a cafe, and he was turning pages for it. There were just red lines, like right through, <laughs> like page after page. Uh, take this section, move this here. I mean, it was a it was a mess, and uh, uh, right at the death knell, just as we're about to like you know hit go on publishing, I quickly pulled the last section out and put it as the first section. Um, I won't go into why, but there's actually there was a logic to what we had before. It's a little illogical because you know we talk about um, uh, missiology shaping your your uh, your Christology shaping your your missiology, which then should shape your ecclesiology. So we started you know with Christology, but I actually kind of pulled that out and put missiology first. So in that respect, it's not even it's not even logical. I just thought. (laughs) I thought that section sung a little bit more, so mm. it kind of went first, and then we hit. I, I said it to Alan, he's like, "I'm not even going to read it now. We've been doing this." <laughs> he said, "What?" <laughs> and so, and so we we pressed play, and uh, you know, 17 years later, we're still talking about it. I mean, yeah, it's insane. Wow, that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about theological education. And Mm -hmm. I know that you don't describe yourself as an academic, despite all the years that you've spent in the classroom. But I do want to ask you about that, because we're hearing more and more pastors say, especially in the first half of 2020, Mm -hmm. this line, seminary never prepared me for what I'm having to face right now. So what does that say about currently about 
theological higher education? And then part part two, how should theological education change in the days ahead? Oh my gosh, I've been having this conversation for 25 years. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't know, I think it was probably more than 20 years ago I read something about the crisis in theological education and I, I feel like we've, we've just been one ongoing crisis. It's just an ongoing challenge to figure out what it looks like to e- equip people for for leadership in, in local churches. Um, I'm, I do teach in a, in a theological college at a university and... Um, uh, I've seen I've seen extraordinary things happen, you know, with students who've come into classes who are, are belligerent or resistant or uh, even not even sure why they're there, and actually go through great transformation and go on to be used by God in in beautiful um, ways. Um, but I'm also conscious of lots of people who say, you know, college never equipped me to do this or that or the other thing. Um, it, it really depends on what kind of student we're talking about. I think a student who's done a liberal arts degree and actually has a capacity for critical thought and research and uh, is uh, across the, the disciplines of the academic life, uh, for them, uh, you know, a theological degree is a, a kind of a finishing school in a way. It's a like, and for them, I think actually it's usually much more um impactful and useful but if we're talking about the bible college experience you know i'm fresh out of high school or i've been a plumber or a doctor and i'm going to do a a diploma or some such thing at a bible college um it depends it really does so am i do i think it's the best model no have i found a better one no um Mm. we Alan and I created a thing called a forge which was a kind of a missional Mm. training school and it was kind of like you know, not anti-theological uh, colleges, but it's kind of like, hey, if you don't want to be clergy, if you don't want to get a job in a church, but you want to kind of be missional and maybe even plant plant a missional community of some kind, um, do this. And it was very effective, but it wasn't it wasn't the the silver bullet. I mean, it, it doesn't. There's, I, I haven't found an alternative. Um, uh, there are all sorts of ways of equipping and developing leaders, and all of them have limitations, as does the the, the seminary. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I continue there um, with my reservations, but also recognizing it's not always as bad as necessarily everybody everybody says it is. On the mm-hmm. on the college never equipped me to, to to cope with this or that. It's like. Just about every doctor, every accountant, every school teacher, every everything will tell you that about the university studies. So, mm, mm. I mean, that's not unique. But if it taught you to be able to handle the tools, uh, uh, to be able to understand and read and interpret scripture, if it gave you the tools uh, to, to have a, a, a disciplined uh, and godly and holy life, if it developed in you kind of rhythms of living uh, and entering into or living into your giftedness and your leadership, if it gave you those kinds of tools, well, grow up and go and figure out the specific skills you need right now for whatever the current challenge is. Mm. How about those who have gone through seminary who are saying that statement over the last several months? Seminary never prepared me for this, and I don't know what the heck to do right now. <laughs> Not that I were looking for a silver bullet, but what sort of instructions or guidance or principles would you want to encourage them with? Uh, I would say that the, there is, the, well, it, it, 
Yeah, well, in broad uh, broad sense, I would say that uh, there's greater wisdom in the community of faith than you you often give it credit for. You don't have to know everything or the way forward or the solution or strategy. Uh, invite your community to contribute into um, uh, thinking this one through. These peculiar challenges around, you know, quarantine and lockdown and, and, and the like are are temporary. Uh, I'm not suggesting that they're not important to address, but um, they're very, very specific. How could anyone have ever prepared you for that, you know, at seminary 15 years ago? Um, but don't feel like you have to come up with all the solutions to for the church to move forward in this. I mean, uh, bring your community together, listen to them, uh, stop being a mono-voiced church and start to embrace kind of multi-voiced a community because uh, who knows what what untapped uh, wisdom, who knows what beautiful missional imagination is actually residing in the community of faith mm. that we're not actually listening to or tapping into. And I think that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about, and I, I don't know if this is on purpose or uh, maybe one of the the beautiful gifts of of the missional movement um, and just understanding like what that has done is it feels like it kind of sets you up to say, I need to listen to people that aren't just in staff. Like we need to get down out of our towers and be in, be in the community, be in the culture. So what are some ways that you would want to encourage pastors and leaders today just to like, you know, Hey, here's like a couple really just super practical ways to engage people and just to, to listen, especially those who are feeling that pressure of like, I need to, I need to lead these people and I need to come up with all the answers. But what are some things that you would say just really practical, practically just to help leaders navigate some of those waters? Um, well, if we can think about it like outside of pandemic times rather than like specifically now. But, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I encourage pastors like, you know, meet people in your congregation at their workplace, uh, have lunch with them. Um, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for that. I think we, we need to kind of the whole missional endeavor is equipping people to actually see their you know everyday work life uh through the lens of the gospel so how do you do that unless you know what their everyday work life is like so mm -hmm. yeah i would say you know i as a pastor would regularly go and you know have lunch with members of the congregation at their workplace like not not meet them you know at home after work or on the weekend sometimes just sit with them and listen to them and hear you know, what does a typical day look like what did you just do this morning like and, and they'll all be like eh, no, it's, it's not that interesting but like <laughs> But clergy, the longer you're clergy, the less connected you are to those kind of normal rhythms and all the kind of compromises and uncertainties that Christians in the workplace are, are constantly having to make. Um, I would also say, you know, provide opportunity for more multi-voiced um, segments of gatherings, like whether that's, you know, some churches aren't up for a whole multiverse kind of a multi-voiced kind of uh, gathering, but provide opportunities for people to share more openly. Uh, I would say that um, uh, recognizing the giftedness uh, in every member of the congregation, discovering what that is like. Um, there, there are just so many things going on in your church right now that you actually don't know about. Um, beautiful, beautiful things. There's probably some ugly and horrible things too, but there are some beautiful things going on in your congregation. I mean, mm -hmm. as a, as a, I don't know uh, what you guys, if you guys find this, but I find I go and speak at other churches, like as a you know guest speaker, and um, 
people come up to me and they tell me stuff like, you know, because you're the guest, I mm. think maybe it's like you're the father. Well, safety. Friends, yeah. So yeah. let me tell you, will, you, will you take this and leave our church and take this <laughs> secret away with you? And it's like, I think, oh, my gosh, don't confess some terrible sin to me. Uh, it's like <laughs> it'll be in some kind of cessationist church. Someone will say, um, I speak in tongues. <laughs> or, um, you know, it's, it's like um, I, had the, I had this woman say to me, do you think this is weird? She said, I paint my prayers. Huh. And I said, mm. I said, what does that mean? And she says, I just get a canvas and there's no words happening. I just paint and mm. this picture is my prayer. And I'm like, wow, how does that work? And she said, you know, would you like to see them? I, I'm not in this church. I've just, I've just preached. And mm. so she and her husband, oh, I say, like, I would love to. Like, you've got painted prayers somewhere? So her mm. husband and and she, like, I follow their car around to her place. They open the roller door in the garage and their, there's no room for a car. They've just stacked, like, all the way through the garage. Wow. These canvases. And they're just, like, you know, you're not going to you're not gonna um, show them. They're just kind of swirly, kind of abstracty kind of, paintings but i looked at them and i said your garage is full of prayer like this mm. is phenomenal and mm. i said um do you ever show them to people do you ever talk to anyone about them and she like she's put the hand over her mouth she's like oh no she said i i told my pastor about it and he thought it was all a little bit weird so i you oh know, I, yeah and i think that's terrible it's terrible oh. I mean, she didn't want to show them. She didn't want an exhibition of her prayers. I mean, she was—it was a very private thing for her. But like, she was she was deeply moved because I was just stoked at the fact that, like, my prayers just like go off to God somewhere and they're gone. Like, it's like it's <laughs> it's, it's it's one time only. You know, you've actually got them in your garage. I mean, mm. anyway, I don't want to labour that story. All that to say is, I mean, you've got no clue what's going on sometimes in the mm. life of your congregation. Um, mm. Like I said, there can be some dark and scary stuff that you don't know about too, but like, like unearthing all the kind of beauty, all the all the deep prayer, all the, all the kind of helpful thinking, all the good strategizing, I mean, that takes a, a attentiveness, a listening ear, being a safe person, all the stuff that we ought to be as, as pastors. That's beautiful. You talked earlier about multi-voiced worship, that are multi-expressed, I guess we should say, including painting. But you recently had a blog post, and we'll put this in the show notes because this is really important, about um, the idea of being multi-voiced even in, uh, in our worship, but also in how we teach and preach. And so I uh, expound upon that a little bit more on the preaching around tables rather than preaching just in sanctuaries and pews, because this is so important. Um, yeah. Explain that a little bit and why this is so crucial for us in the days ahead here with the church? Well, I, I feel as though we have a bit of an old-fashioned idea around uh, learning. It's it, it, it can, I mean, there's a long tradition in, in the church of, of, of the preach, 
but even in academia, like there's the the lecture in a lecture hall where it's monologue and people sit and take notes and the knowledge has somehow been transferred. And then the university then brought into play the tutorial, which is obviously you know, a smaller gathering of deeper interaction around the material being studied. Um, the church, in a way, followed suits. The sermon is like the lecture and the home group Bible study then becomes like tutorial in a way. But it's still all one way a transfer of knowledge. It's still all the lecturer or the study group or tutor kind of transferring the knowledge to the to the congregation, either the whole congregation or a small group of the congregation. But most people who are teachers now know that neither of those are actually kind of the best way for for, for uh, communication and that something between uh, an evolution in a way of the tutorial, which is where we're actually canvassing the thoughts of and ideas from the students themselves, where it's directed, it's led, there's a tutor, they're taking this somewhere, there's certain information that people need to be able to engage, there are skills that need to be acquired, but the knowledge actually, it's often presumed, is in the student body itself. And mm. those who are exploring or experimenting with dialogical preaching, uh, uh, with um, multi-voiced uh, learning, and in your country, you know, the, the people like Wes Allen and Doug Padgett uh, in the UK, Stuart Murray, um, uh, Dan White Jr. There's a bunch of people who are kind of exploring what does it look like for us to actually be teachers? It's not free for all. It's not just like anyone got an idea. Do you want to share it? Uh, I'm directing it. I'm shepherding it. There's a topic or there's a passage that we're exploring. There are certain markers I'd like us to kind of get to in our conversation. But there are the surprises of being open to the wisdom of all who gather in the community. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I have a very deep classic, you know, American-style Baptist uh, ecclesiology, and I do actually think that um, that there is wisdom in, in the congregation and there is knowledge that we can acquire from each other. We do need teachers. It's not a free-for-all. It's not just a random general conversation. It's not a brainstorming uh, exercise. It is a shepherded learning experience. Um, mm -hmm. Progressional dialogue is a way, another a term that's used for it. And particularly kind of more uh, emerging styles of church, table churches, dinner churches, uh, the kind of a more micro church experience. Um, it, in those settings, it's completely weird for someone to stand up and just talk for 30 or 40 minutes. So of yeah. course, around a table, how do we learn from each other? It's dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of teacher facilitator instead of teacher monologuer or teacher lecturer, that's a hard paradigm shift when oftentimes theological higher education trains you to just be, and I'm not trying to bash on higher edu education, either are you. I teach at a seminary as well. Like there's good in that. But if we've been trained in a traditional way of just monologuing for pe at people instead of engaging around tables, um, that's a problem. And yeah, we well, talk about the, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the other problem with that in the theological or the formal education setting is that, you know, we teach you to write essays um, not in the first person and we teach you to write in a way which is non-emotional and non-creative. And um, 
uh, we invite you to kind of really dwell in your kind of left brain and and build an argument for us. Now I teach preaching at at the school that I'm I'm part of, and it can take me like half a semester just to get them to to move over to their to their right brain. It's mm-hmm. like no 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 feel this passage. What do you feel about this? Well, mm-hmm. I think I think Paul when he was writing to the Philippians. No 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 no. Just what? How do you feel about what he just said? You're like what what's what pictures come to mind? What like we're just not very good at all of that. Mm-hmm. And yet, members of our congregation, that's how they engage the scriptures all the time. Mm-hmm. Now. Some people might say, well, hold on, if we just kind of hand this over to the laity, it'll all just be feelings and waterfalls and butterflies and, you know. Yeah, okay, maybe. That's what you're there for. So, Mm. like, maybe the combination of somebody who actually knows how to handle this text and has the the, the skills of of hermeneutics but is open to the contributions of others who are actually going to bring perspective, colour, emotion, that's actually going to enhance the, the whole experience of a congregation learning the scriptures together. Surely there's mm. going to be something really, really useful in that. Mm. That's that's mm. so helpful. Um, you know, you mentioned, I love that. I love that question. You said, what do you feel in this passage? Mm-hmm. Um, when we're trying to move from our left brain to our right brain, are there other questions or other skills that you're, that you use to help some of your students to think through what it looks like to teach in that way? Or to <laughs> well, I make them do a process writing exercise. So it's like read the scripture uh, now. Write. Don't ta- and I make them write with a pen on paper. So it's like don't take your pen off the paper. Just write. Write shit. Write. Write bullshit. Write garbage. Write whatever. Just write. Just write scribbles until something comes. Just write. And don't write ideas. Just write feelings and pictures. Mm. And. Now, they never get it the first time. Oh, some of them do, but most of them never. They can't do it because, Doug, I mean, JR, to your point, it's almost like the university and seminary experience has kind of like crushed it out of them. Mm. And it's, it's a little bit like, hold on, you've been teaching me for years not to do this. So mm. um, uh, it takes a lot of effort. And some students, I mean, some students will say to me, like, I'm an engineer, you know, I'm a scientist. Like, I, I, that's the world I come from. Seriously, I've got to stop thinking about what Paul really meant when he wrote to the Galatians and who they, who they like, I've got to stop all that. It's like, not stop it. Like, could you just press pause on it for a second? Mm. Because, um, there's something really important here about you raging against what Paul said or yeah. you just breaking down in tears around what Paul said or whatever passage of scripture you happen to be in. Like, just, yeah. like your congregation needs permission to be able to feel their way into this passage as well as they need information on the background of who wrote it and when and why and it's important that we know this or that and in the Israel's history this was happening and that was happening. Sure, you have expertise in those kinds of areas, but don't let that dominate the process. Yeah. So a multi-voiced experience is one where some little old lady who paints her prayers and keeps them secret in the garage can say, you know, I've always thought maybe Paul means this. And suddenly it's like, what? Boom. Like those moments never happen when only one voice gets to do all the talking. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we think about how Jesus taught, uh, I've, I've described it as he takes us on three field trips, right? There are mental field trips where he asks tons of questions. There are emotional field trips where he tells a lot of stories. And then there are physical field trips where he literally peripatetically takes us on a walk and, you know, his disciples. And so what do we do when we preach? We sit people in a room. We don't go for a walk. We t- teach at them abstractly instead of questions. And we we give them statements instead of questions, right? There's no stories, there's no questions, there's no movement. And then we sit around and wonder, why is nobody changing? <laughs> and it just always felt like if we just return to the style in which Jesus taught, we might actually get some uh, fruit and some evidence that the kingdom is present through our teaching. Well, uh, that may be a little bit then, cynical, but... <laughs> well, the other, the other thing that we do is that when we hear about Paul, you know, preaching all night in an upper room and some guy falling asleep and all that kind of jazz, we think it's a, like a monologue for, you know, what, hours and hours and hours? It's like that. that's what we do. We, we take that thing you just said, uh, a bit being in a room and what have you, and then we transpose that onto passages where it talks about Paul preaching, mm. and it's like you can't be serious that you thought the guy was just like speaking in monologue the whole night. It was story after story after story. Then people would be say, well, hold on, what does that mean? And why would he have said that? And, well, hang on, well, in our context, it would have just been a whole, it would have been a massive tutorial is what mm. it would have been. Uh, it would have mm. been a multi-voiced experience, shepherded and progressed forward by, by Paul. And for Paul, it's like, I'm only here for one night. I'm going to get it all out. So there's clearly a curriculum. It's not a free-for-all or a brainstorming exercise. But the idea that we think he would preach, like years ago, I won't mention any names here, but years ago, Alan Hirsch and I were doing a, um, a series of seminars. And in the middle of the seminar, someone stood up and, oh, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. In the middle of it, someone stood up and said uh, to Alan, do you believe in the, the importance of preaching or something like that. And Alan said, uh, well, I believe in the importance of the scriptures sitting at the centre of the community of faith and us being a, a hermeneutical community that they are interpreted and learned and embraced and lived out. And so, yeah, teaching and the word of God, the community is a hermeneutical community, absolutely. Yeah, he said, but what about preaching? Well, says Alan, like preaching is a tool. It's one of the ways that you might do that. And it could be that in a certain setting you might think, wow, there's a lot of background you guys need to this particular book that we're going to look at. I just need to do a bit of monologue just for you to get the background. Yes, yeah, so sure. But like all tools, like if there's a better tool under a certain circumstances, you know, you'd use different tools. But the most important thing is the word would be central. We're a hermeneutical community. We gather around it as a regular rhythm of our life. It is a it watches over the life of the community and we submit ourselves to it. Not good enough. That guy <laughs> said that guy said, right, so you don't believe in preaching. Okay, got it, got it. Walked out. Walked out. <laughs> wow. So, so we're, we're beholden to a tool that can never, ever be compromised. And you think mm. you don't even you don't even practice the sacraments with that level mm. of devotion. Mm. You can like, we can do it once a blue moon, we can do it once a quarter, we can do it whatever. You can do it with like crackers and orange juice. You can like, you know, we can, who cares how much water you use? It's like whatever, like, but preaching, like we don't. And why is that? Yeah, well, why is it? Because you're the preacher and it's like, Mm. in in effect, the bit that you contribute 
we don't compromise on that whatsoever. Mm. Now, you, mm. you, know, you have to ask yourself some questions there about what's really behind that dogged devotion to the, the monologue. Mm-hmm. That's really wow. good. So, Mike, as, I, as I'm hearing you, as I'm hearing you talk, like, and just thinking about that kind of the questioning um, that you just mentioned, my sense is a lot of pastors and leaders right now are really tired and feel like really overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you want to encourage pastors today? Yeah, well, I would acknowledge how tired and overwhelmed they are, uh, particularly in this current season. I mean, it's it's um, it's unprecedented. I, I almost smile then because everything you know, sometimes seems, un- but this is unprecedented. I mean, who's ever heard of something like this uh, within our lifetimes or even our parents' lifetimes? So um, there's just there's grief and sadness everywhere. I mean, uh, you you might be a pastor with people in your congregation who have been desperately ill or who have lost loved ones, or you may have lost people in your congregations. I mean, a friend of mine, Michael Carrion, uh, up in Bronx, has lost 13 members of his community to the coronavirus. I mean, I mean that's not just exhausting. I mean, that's overwhelming, that level of, of grief. You are carrying that kind of sadness and pain uh, uh, in the life of your congregation. And I, I acknowledge that and I want to honour you for holding that and bearing that and, and being present to your community in the midst of that. But even if no one in your community has passed away or even knows someone who has, if you happen to have gotten through this without that being the case, it's just a, a level of anxiety and uncertainty. Certainly there was with corona, but I think with the whole kind of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protests and uh, the the massive conversation your country is having around race. Um, people are anxious. People, mm. some may be hopeful, uh, some may be cynical, but there are deep, deep feelings swirling around the life of your congregation and your frustration around the fact that you can't get them all together in the same room and express that and share that. I mean, how do we deal with grief? Generally, we tell stories. We mm. come together, we bury somebody, and then we all go and, and, and like, drink beer and tell stories about that person. It's like mm. stories are healing. I mean, how do we how do we minister to, to scared or, or, or uh, lonely kids? We read them stories. Like stories are how we heal ourselves of, of some of the most profound hurts in our lives. And we feel as pastors like really frustrated because it feels like there's a kind of a wall here. We do what we're doing right now. We look at each other's faces on screen, but it's still not quite the same. And mm. to gather together, to share story, to grieve together, to care for each other, to touch each other. We can't do any of those things. They're all the skills we learned for how to deal with a community in crisis. And at the mm. moment, we can't exercise them. So how, mm. how would I encourage them other than to say, I see you, I, I, I mm. feel what you're going through. It's difficult. Mm. I mean, the mm. pastor of the church that I attend is a single woman. Um, she lives alone. I mean, for her, it's even more heightened in a way. It's not, it's not even, there's not even a husband or kids or a family in the home uh, that she's able to, to draw upon. So I, I'm very conscious of that. And I don't think this is a time for us to say, you know, tisk tisk tisk, pastors do better or like, you know, get mm. cracking with some new innovations or figure this out. Uh, no one can figure this out quickly. Um, to adopt a posture of, of humility, to be gentle with yourself, 
to remain diligent in your commitments to listening and connecting and so far as we can electronically uh, mm-hmm. to pray for a day when we can be together um, to to keep your finger on the pulse of your congregation to make sure not just that they're all there I don't mm. want to just be counted in my congregation I don't want people oh yeah Mike's there good but I want someone to know how is he like where is he and I would say I'm doing pretty good like spend some more time with people who aren't, but at least yeah. hear from me in that respect. So lots mm. of attentive listening. This is the, the time and um, and pray and hope for the day when things open up again and we can heal. Um, mm. But the beautiful thing about this too, uh, even though all of that's true, is actually a whole bunch of people have discovered their neighbours' names. <laughs> a whole bunch of people have have like talked over the back fence when they never did before. Like I've heard so so many amazing stories. I mean, someone was telling me the other day that a guy in their street died of of COVID nineteen, and they couldn't have or they could only have a funeral with five people or something. So the street all came out and they all stood at the end of their their driveways all up and down the street. Um, like in a vigil to kind of honour him. And then they wow. said to my, my friend, used to be a pastor, He's now, he now works in finance, but they said via, via Zoom or WhatsApp or something, they're like, um, um, you're, you were a pastor, weren't you? Would you like to say a few words? And so he's like yelling down the street, <laughs> conducting like some non-traditional like curbside memorial service. Wow. And, there are things like that happening, you know, all over the place, beautiful, beautiful stories of generosity. And so in a way I think maybe what we might come out of this is with a community that's actually more connected to its neighbours than it had been before. And I'm not mm. saying that was God's plan or, hey, didn't everything work out well. I'm just saying there's, there's possibly a redemptive aspect to what's been a really dark and difficult time. Mm-hmm. Well, last question for you. I'm not saying you're old, but you've been in the game for a while. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, more in the academic realm, but you've been in ministry, of course. So what keeps you in the game? Why have you not given up on ministry or church or investing in future kingdom leaders? I think maybe uh, one one thing that's that's particular to me is I am an incredibly dogged loyal kind of person <laughs> um and so like one of my former students now a pastor wrote a really touching email to me the other day and he just said like i am done i hate my church i'm over it there oh, there were certain you know, things that prompted this but um how do you do it how do you stick with this i can't bear it any longer and um i had to say to him you know quoting Dorothy Day, it's um, like the church is a whore, but she's also our mother. Like Mm. to whom else would we turn? We found salvation through her. We found life and and purpose and identity. We found Christ through her. So, yeah, there are times when, and people sometimes say I'm too critical of the church or I'm, too too negative or I always find that the thing that's wrong with all the the good stuff that's going on and maybe but I'm still here and she's still my mother and I haven't I haven't turned on her I haven't changed my name I'm still named after her um so there's there's a there's a doggedness that's that's 
but something about my personality or my Irish Catholic upbringing or something like that. But mm. also, I mean, I have rhythms in place. I have, you know, you know, mentors, uh, spiritual directors. Uh, I'm committed to a series of rhythms in my life uh, around prayer and around eating with others and around uh, listening to the Spirit of God and the like. Um, so, yeah, I put rhythms and practices in place. I'm part of a community. I planted a church and led it for, for 15 years. Uh, that season ended for us. We're now just attending our local church. And, you know, we can roll our eyes about what that's like, but we go. We, we're still there. Uh, we chose it because we can walk to it. It's in our neighbourhood. It's made up of local people. It's not perfect. And maybe there's another another project for us, you know, in the pipeline. But for, for now, like, it's where we are and we turn up. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I would say, you know, turning up is is half the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. It's always great to connect with you. Thanks for your willingness to come on the podcast. These conversations, we, all, we don't always know where they go, but it's been fascinating. So thank you for your willingness to join us. Oh, Doug and Jared, it's great to talk to you guys too. Thanks. Doug, isn't it fun to be able to interact with an author who has shaped us deeply throughout the years in our understanding of church, to be able to just have a conversation with him all these years later? Heck yeah. It was so good. I remember reading that that book right before I started seminary with a friend Uh, of mine. And it uh, was like, I felt like my eyes were open to things that stirred deep within, but I never was able to put to words. And so mm. I was just really grateful. And, uh, how cool is it too, that we had a chance to have a conversation with a guy literally halfway around the world. Yeah. Um, and just so great, uh, so grateful that he was willing to wake up at six forty-five in the morning to yeah. jump on yeah. a call with us, us too. So, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was trying to explain that to my boys. Uh, I said, it was like a little riddle. I said, I just got off a zoom call with somebody where it's winter and was early in the morning. How is that possible? And these 13 and 10 year old boys are like, uh, they were, he was in Canada. And I was like, no, was he in Colorado and it's snowing? No. So anyway, but it was really fun and, uh, yeah, grateful for his influence. Literally. Yeah. Half the world away. Um, not just distance wise, but also all these years later, um, that was my first introduction to what does it mean to understand God's mission beyond on, mm. go to just go to church on Sunday morning. Um, and uh, I, I didn't even know what I didn't know at the time. And I have this distinct memory when we lived in Colorado Springs, I was sitting at the last gate waiting for my flight to take off at the Colorado Springs airport when I cracked that book open at the suggestion of Mr. Foley, my 12th grade Bible teacher in, in high school. And he said, read this book. And I'm so glad he told me to do that. It just, mm. yeah, it blew the the hinges, uh, the door off my hinges of thinking about church and for that, yeah. for, I'm, I'm grateful for it. So yeah, that's a, well, one more story. I have a friend of mine um, that I've been interacting with over the last year and um, he's had kind of a, a really difficult faith journey. And he said the church that he was at before he got, um, he started reading that book and, and it really helped him to rethink like what it really means to be church, uh, to be the church and, what it means to enter into the stuff. So yeah, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of us have those moments with 
not all books, but certain books. And and yeah. it's interesting. Like you mentioned it, I was thinking about my other friend and I know for me, it was really important. And yeah, so it, it feels like we get a chance to talk with someone who um, has done a lot of the thinking that we've picked up and run with. And I feel Absolutely. like- even from the perspective of of a lot of how you know how our church is situated, uh, kind of his fingerprints are all over it. Absolutely, yeah. And I've told Frosty that before, and and Alan Hirsch, uh, maybe that's someone we need to have on. Alan's become a friend, and and uh, it'd be fun to have him on the on the podcast as well. Because of, you know, oftentimes they're saying, you know, Australia and England have been post-Christian long before the United States. So it's important for us to listen to thinkers and practitioners who are already there in a post-Christian context. They've already seen it. And it's important for us to listen and learn from those. So that's always been a, a practice of mine to make sure that I'm listening to thinkers and practitioners from a post-Christian context who are a decade or so ahead of where we have been, maybe more, in the United States uh, to see what's coming on the horizon. Mm. Um, but uh, you mentioned before we started recording that he seems to be a curator and a collector of good stories. I would agree. Say, say more about that. Um, just, well, first of all, the story of the woman who was painting her prayers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think sometimes as pastors, we we have this tendency to get stuck in these ruts where where we might miss the the beautiful things that the Spirit's doing within our church. And um, yeah, I, I loved, I loved that story. And even just thinking too, like, man, who are the people? We're, we're fortunate in our community. We have some artists, but yeah, I was I, thinking about that. We got to do a shout out to Lindsay Smith. Yeah. You know, she's been leading us <laughs> yeah. through yeah. prayer art uh, here, yeah. even through the pandemic. Yeah. And, and just even realizing how I, I really appreciate the way that, that he uh, almost, I think sometimes the beautiful, one of the beautiful things about about being um, formed by missional theology is it, it like gives us this great freedom to create and to be creative with God. And so that was just something that I really just appreciated. And part of me was like, I was like, I wonder if we could do like a monthly thing called Stories with Frosty and just have him like share some <laughs> stories. Because I was like, he's just so good at like telling the story. And, um, I feel like it just kind of reeks of the gospel and even realizing like, and I think he, he said this, he said this, and this is something we've said before too, but stories are healing. Yeah. And like, as I, I think through that, it's like, man, they are healing. Um, so anyways, yeah. What are some things that jumped out to you, JR? Well, certainly the story of the woman who prayed by painting, uh, prayer art. And it, it, in addition to the creativity, it reminded me of the importance of listening to our people and unleashing people into their giftedness. Um, they already are there. They just need to be given permission. And oftentimes we're the permission givers. And so I guess a question that's been rolling around in my head is who do I need to give permission to? Not that they need my permission, but somehow they think they do. And so who are the people I need to cheerlead and say, you need to keep going. You need to lead us in this way. And so um, just think about missionaries cleverly cleverly disguised as good neighbors, a phrase we've had since the beginning of our church. Um, but missionaries cleverly disguised as painters mm. and artists. You know, we need those, I think, especially in a time where we need so much healing in our culture. But yeah, the multi-voice preaching, I think that was really good for us. You know, how do we learn to use the other side of our brain when we preach? And I think that was incredibly important. And I, lo- I love that conversation. I could have talked for another two hours on how do we communicate God's word in creative ways. And Seriously. Um, so, but the other thing that he brought up is uh, he mentioned sort of the macro micro mm. uh, idea, right? Like how's the world changing? And then how do I love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And uh, 
I spent some time, I've spent some time thinking about that and that this is the, the time of social disruption and cultural upheaval. We have a macro, micro, and almost a personal level too. The macro, how is the world changing? What does this mean for all of us globally in this global village? The micro, as he said, who is my neighbor? How do I interact, interact, connect, love, and serve my neighbor? But also on a personal level of this great disruption we're all experiencing, do I have the virus? Am I a carrier of that? Even questions like, am I a racist? How would I know? How am I feeling physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, relationally? These are all like very personal and inward questions that we're all asking of ourselves. And the macro, the micro, and the personal are all making us very uncomfortable. So I'm really grateful how he's able to take very complex issues and really boil it down to some things that spark some new ways of thinking for me that I hadn't thought about before. So I'm deeply grateful. Yeah. How about you give us some resources, JR? Yeah. So one of the things that we obviously were talking about the shaping of things to come, and I would encourage anybody, if you have never read that book, especially if you're a kingdom leader or pastor, you need to read the book and you say, well, it's 17 years old. It's still relevant today, Mm -hmm. maybe more relevant today than it was. So read that. If you, if it's been a long time and it's been on your shelf, pull it off and skim it, reread it. I do that about every couple of years to just go over and remind myself, see where I underlined and dog-eared and highlighted thoughts. So that's the first one. The second resource comes from a really tiny book uh, called Surprise the World. And Surprise the World came out a couple of years ago by Mike. Um, Surprise the World, The Five Habits of Highly Missional People. And in it, he talked about an acronym, bells. And I think in this season of where healing is needed and the importance of practices, when you asked him about practices that he's engaged in, he just uses that acronym bells, B-E-L-L-S, uh, that's been really helpful. And for him, and I think for many other people, first one is bless, bless people. Two, eat together. We share meals. Jesus was, you know, as Len Sweet said, Jesus ate good food with bad people. <laughs> um, that we listen really listen. This is a season of deep listening for people uh, in our country right now. Learning, how can we be a a humble learner? And then lastly, sent. That we're sent people. We have to realize we are missionaries. So I would recommend that book. It's a real small book. So that's the second one. The third one is his website, uh, mikefrost.net mikefrost.net. And we'll put these in the show notes as well. On there, there are two two resources we'd want to recommend on the website. Uh, where he expounded upon the multi-voice preaching. Um, for, it's just Bible teaching can happen at the table, not just the pulpit, uh, and talking about preaching. And I, that would be a great one. And then another one off the, his website that we'd recommend is where he talks about five cultural trends that are killing the church's mission. Mm. Uh, really, really good. So those are the resources. Um, Doug, what are some questions that you can leave us with? Yeah, here are the questions that I was thinking through as I heard him talk. Uh, this first one is, is I think, a really important one for us. How might you cultivate your sanctified imagination? And so um, I just feel like this is a season when we need to ask the Spirit to give us creativity. So what does it look like to cultivate your sanctified imagination? Second one, what story of hope? Do we need to, do you need to tell yourself right now? And the third one, where is the Lord asking you to dream or rethink ministry in this season? Um, and so those are the questions that, that we have for you. JR, why don't you send us out? Yeah. Well, brothers and sisters of the podcast, as we leave here, would you have a sanctified, stirred, sacred imagination? May the Lord do something new in you as you go. And in this time of great disruption, may we not see it as a curse, but may we see it as an invitation 
as an opportunity and as a space of possibility for the kingdom to break through in new ways. So don't be afraid to learn and unlearn and relearn how we've done church and why we've done church. Always keeping Jesus at the center, but realizing that there's a world that's wondering, will the church be a part of the healing? And may you and may we be the kinds of people that bring healing through blessing and eating, listening, learning, and being sent. God bless and bless God. Bless God.